You need these parables. They're helpful to the seasoned follower of Jesus. They're helpful to the new follower of Jesus. They're helpful to the person who's wondering, what is Jesus about? You need these parables. And the one that we're going to look at today is a famous one, but is often completely misunderstood. And to set the, the scene for this, we need to hear the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke. Listen to these first two. Now the tax collector and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This sets the stage for what we're going to look at in, in Luke 15. Luke is a, a physician and a historian who, who is put together in the Gospel of Luke one of the most detailed, historically accurate, and just complete pictures of Jesus' life. And at this scene, we're finding out that the religious teachers of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who knew God's word and law backwards and forwards, they saw Jesus in his ministry eating with sinners, eating with social outcasts. Eating with tax collectors, people who were seen as traitors and swindlers, and he's eating with them. One of the most intimate things you can do in the first century is to eat with somebody. And the religious people see who Jesus is involved with, and they say, how can he eat with these people? He claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the Messiah, and yet he's hanging out with the lowest of low, the worst of the worst, the outsiders of the outsiders. These two things are not compatible. Imagine you saw somebody, the biggest, most outspoken vegetarian, and then you keep seeing them at the Outback Steakhouse every single day. They're there for breakfast. They're there for lunch. They're there for dinner. You're eating steak for breakfast. You would just be like, this does not make any sense. You cannot be who you say you are. We're taking the vegetarian bumper sticker off of your car. This cannot really be you. That's the type of conflict and categorical misunderstanding that's happening in this text. And so Jesus wants to make a point. Jesus is going to tell three parables in Luke 15 because he wants us to understand God's love for the so-called outcast, for those outside the church or synagogue. Jesus wants us to rethink sin so that we can really understand grace. That's what he's doing in these parables. So in Luke 15, you can do this for homework. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, all making the same point. Then he tells the, the culminating one, the parable of the prodigal sons. And Jesus' point is this. God's grace is scandalous. God's mercy is scandalous because it shatters our categories of good and bad people. God's grace is scandalous because it shatters our categories of good and bad people. So the Pharisees have heard the parable of the lost sheep. They've heard the parable of the lost coin and these parables about God's love for the outsider, God's love for the outcast. And the Pharisees and the crowd around him, imagine him in a crowd of hundreds listening. They're confused. Some are confused. Some are angry. And some are like, we want to hear more. And in the midst of that environment, Jesus, imagine just kind of repositioning himself, right? He's been standing, he's been teaching, maybe he's tired, his, uh, his feet are hurting from his sandals, and he, he fires up and he readies this parable. And this is what he shares. Luke 15, 11 through 32. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he, the the, the older brother, the, the older son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want you to think about this parable in scenes like a movie. If you know movies, they move in scenes. You have the opening scene, the the setting scene, then you have the moment where the story turns, then you have this this midpoint in a film where where things flip completely, and then you have the moment of where everything is lost, and then you have a resolution. I want you to think about this in terms of scenes. And in this first scene, 11 through 16, It only takes one sentence for the Pharisees to realize this is not a standard teaching. This is a category-shaking and breaking parable. It only takes one sentence for them to realize that. Verse 12. What does it say? What does the younger son ask of his father? The younger son says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. As soon as Jesus says this, everybody who is listening, they gasp. Their jaw drops. They elbow the other person. They go. This is unheard of. 
The son is asking his father for what? The younger son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all that is supposed to come to me when you die, but give it to me now. He's saying, Dad, I'm eager to bury you. I want my share of everything. Give it to me now. You have to understand, this is first century Middle East. Jesus is Middle Eastern man. This is an honor and shame culture. Do you know what brings the most honor to a father in this culture? Their sons. Their sons obeying them. Their sons helping them. Their sons carrying the family name. Their sons carrying the family business. And yet here we have a son come to a father and say, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine. This is unheard of. In fact, in the very, very, very rare case that this would happen, do you know what the proper response was for a typical Middle Eastern father? Slap your son. That's the stand. So, so as soon as the crowd hears verse 12, they're going, oh, snap. Here it comes. Like, is he going to hit him with a little slap? Like, what kind of, like, oh, man, we're ready for this. That's what they're expecting. First, they're caught off guard by this request. They're like, What? This guy's crazy. And understand, is he going to be hit? If you actually even look at Deuteronomy 21, there's procedures outlined for this type of family betrayal. The crowd is ready for the hammer to drop. But what does the father do in 13? The father grants his request. So the crowd has another gasp. The crowd says, are you kidding me? The father grants the very request in response to the request that brings him shame. You have to understand that already people are like, this does not fit in my categories. This is how powerful Jesus is. He tells four or five sentences and people's categories are absolutely destroyed. What type of father is this? What type of son is this that would, that would do such a shameful thing? And, and so the father grants his unthinkable request, this request that shames his name and also breaks his heart. Imagine most, one of the most intimate relationships to have somebody say, you're dead to me. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. The father grants the request. 13, the son sells it and he gets out of town immediately. He gets his stuff, he sells it, and he bounces. One-way train ticket to New York City, right? He's out. Why is he? Why does he leave so quickly? One, because the town would be livid, blood boiling, because this is a communal culture where the shame is not only upon the father and the family name, but everybody, the whole town. People in other towns would be saying, can you, look, you hear what just happened in the town over that we trained with? Can you believe this? You know what the Jackson boy just did? The town would be boiling, their blood would be boiling over. In fact, it would be impossible to come back to the town because the town would have had a ceremony waiting and saying, you're cut off from our people. And Jesus, in these first few verses, this first scene, he's painting a picture for us in this unthinkable request. Here's the picture. He wants to, us to redefine sin so we can really understand the scandal of grace. And here's the picture he's painting. He's painting a category-shaking picture of sin. And the picture of sin, the essence of sin, is the son's request. Right? The parable, we don't really need to explain that much. The father is like God. The son is like us. And the essence of sin is the son's request. God, I want your stuff, but not you. 
It's really, in a large part, the essence of sin. Now, now I want you to take inventory. When you hear sin, do you mostly just think of breaking rules? Breaking God's commands? Not doing the things that God calls us to do, like loving your neighbor as yourself, loving him above all others. Right? Sin is, is that, but it's much more. Sin is not just a legal thing. Sin is a relational thing. And that's what Jesus is showing us. Sin is saying, God, I want to enjoy your world. God, I want to enjoy the life that you gave me. God, I want to live my way with your good gifts. But I don't want you at all. The younger son, this is the beauty of the Bible. Never, there's parts we don't understand that can be harder, but the beauty of Scripture is it's, it is God's word for us, so it's always relevant. And, and this younger son, he's, he's really the poster child of modern culture's motto. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Discover you. Decide right and wrong as long as it hurts no one else. That's why the son is bold enough to ask the unthinkable. You've got to imagine, imagine, this takes some courage to do this in an honor and shame culture, knowing that like, I'm never going to be able to come back to my family. I'm going to get a large chunk of money, but man, I'm going to be an outcast. I'm going to pop on over to New York City and it's going to be worth it. Right? This, this, the son, is, he's trying to, he wants freedom. He wants to discover himself. He wants to be true to himself. He wants to live to himself. He wants to decide everything for himself. He wants to be freed from traditional culture, freed from having to have his identity tied to his family and his father. He wants to discover who he truly is. He wants to live his own way. And isn't this how a lot of us end up running from God? Don't you find that in you sometimes? Even if you're here and you love Jesus, that there's parts of you that say, man, I just want to do things my way. The son here is really the picture of your religion. Live free, do as we please. Pay no mind to the God who loves us. Right, this is what culture teaches us, but, but, but think about it this way. What if this promise of, of irreligion, live free, do as we please, actually, what if it actually takes us further away from joy and fulfillment rather than bringing us closer to those things? Right? What if it's actually impossible for us to be true to ourselves because ourselves are so complicated and conflicting? Our desires are so at war with each other. Our desires are so shifting. What if it's actually impossible to be true to ourselves? Right, I, want you, I want you to just, just think about this. Think about over the course of your life the things that meant the most to you at different points in your life. Right, we change. We're complicated. It's hard to distinguish our true self, what we really desire, from all the influences around us. It's, it's impossible to be your true self. We're too complicated to really even do that. So this overpromises and underdelivers, and the younger brother follows his desire, follows our cultural motto. He hits rock bottom. He has to try to eat what type of food? Not even McDonald's. He's trying to eat pig food. He's trying to eat what the pigs eat. You've got to understand the crowd is going to gasp at this point, too, because the crowd is primarily... Jewish. So they're saying, what? A young Jewish man is coming near pigs? He's working among them? He wants to eat what they eat? Their mind is blown. 
They cannot believe this. I want you to just think of the most despicable, kind of disgusting, kind of goosebumpy thing you could think of somebody eating or doing or associating with. That's what's happening here. He's hit rock bottom physically, but he's also hit it, probably hit rock bottom emotionally. He's thinking, oh, he's thinking, dear God, what have I done? He's got a large inheritance. His father's rich, right? He's, he's eating meat. That, that doesn't happen that much. It's only special occasion. He's got fat and calves. His father's rich, so the son got a huge inheritance. He blows it all on reckless living. He's hit rock bottom, and he's got to be thinking, what have I done, God? My people will not take me back. My dad will not take me back. I'm cut off from my family and friends. I'm in a city where I don't know anybody. Clearly doesn't have enough connections to be loved because he's trying to eat pig food. He has hit rock bottom by trying to follow just his own way. And then Jesus takes us to act two where the the younger brother thinks he can negotiate with the father. Thinks he can negotiate. The story turns, look at 17 and 18. The son came to himself. He comes to his senses. He sees that what he has followed is really a one-way ticket to soul ache. He has a light bulb moment. I can never be my father's son again, but you know what I can do? The next best slot, the third slot down, I could be a servant. I could come and I could work. I'll eat more than pig's food. I won't be close with them, but at least I'll see them. I'll be around them. Maybe, maybe the father will take me back, not as a son, but as a servant. Now, again, the people in the crowd, they got to scoff at this. They're scoffing, there's laughter, there's the elbow. I'm like, are you serious? Come on, man. All of that's happening. Because no self-respecting father is going to take back a son who has betrayed them so publicly. Again, do you know what the crowd is waiting for? The hammer of justice. Oh, when he comes back. Retribution. Payment. Aren't we like the son at this point too? That our conception of God has a, has a large portion of it that's related to renegotiating. That we look at God as more of boss than father. It's like, boss, I, I know I didn't get this done in time, but if you give me a couple more days, I'll, I'll make it up, and then you give me this, and then I'll get this, and then I'll do this, and then you'll accept me, and then you'll love me more, and then my guilt will be gone, and we'll, we'll kind of barter and trade. Try to renegotiate with God. And the main way we think about this is, we think about this as, well, when I'm doing better, God loves me more. You may never say that, but you feel it, don't you? How quick do you make a move from your sin, uh, something that you know, man, this doesn't honor God and I've fallen into it or I did it or I said this or I thought this or I've done this. How quick do you move from the knowledge of that to immediately knowing God accepts me through Jesus? The space in between those two moves where you linger and kind of guilt or, well, if I do this, I'll feel a little bit better about myself. That's the the degree to which we don't quite understand the scandal of grace. The son thinks, I'll negotiate, work my way back. We want to come to God on our terms, but the essence of the biblical story, the essence of Christianity, the essence of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is we don't come to God on our own terms with our merit. God comes to us with the scandal of grace. You see, if it's up to the town, what awaits the son at the gates of the town is rejection. That the townspeople would be there ready 
to reject him. Ready to say, you don't belong. They would have already had their ceremony where they fill this jar with stuff, then break it and say, you're cut off from the people. They would not welcome him back. I want you to think about the image we often see it on the news where, where a, uh, uh, somebody who's, who's served in the military, the army, and they return and at the airport, everyone's waiting for them, right? And there's signs and there's welcome, right? Well, think about the, the opposite of that. Upon your return, what's, what's waiting for you is rejection. What's waiting for you is a sign that says, you turn, you're not welcome here. You've shamed us. You've shamed yourself. You've shamed your father. You've shamed your name. You've shamed your people. That mistake can't be undone. That shame owns you like a master over a slave. You're not welcome here. That's what's waiting for the son. That's why he's thinking, well, probably, man, I got to get in quick. I'm going to have to do this juck and jive, and I got to get there fast, and I got to get secured as a servant before the people reject me and before my father rejects me, before people catch wind, I've got to secure this. I've got to make this happen. But what happens in verse 20? The father sees his son, spots him a ways off, which implies that the father's been watching. Listen, you're not spotting anybody way off unless you're, unless you're ready. Unless you've been hoping, thinking, expecting well, they might show up. That's what kids do when they're waiting for their parents to get home. That's what boys do all the time. Where's mommy? They're just hovering over the window, waiting, waiting, waiting. Jesus, in this little phrase, is again trying to reshape our categories about the nature and character of God. That God actually isn't so much waiting to drop the hammer of judgment. He's waiting He's desiring to welcome us in the embrace of his mercy. He's waiting for the sun. Do you, do you understand God in this way? Do, do, you, do you believe? Do you really live? Do you really experience? Do you really sense that God is always waiting for you with grace? With his unmerited favor, which means favor you don't have to merit, which means favor you don't have to earn, which means it's free to you because it cost him through his son's sacrifice. Do you, do you see that? Do you live with the freedom that comes from knowing that? The freedom that says, man, I don't have to perform anymore for anyone. Because I have the Father's acceptance and grace through his son Jesus. I love this. The son comes. The father runs and embraces him. Now, this is, again, the crowd is, the crowd is just spending the whole time gasping. They're going to gasp here. They're draws, drop here. Because a Middle Eastern man wearing a robe is not going to run. Because what happens when you run with a robe on? Yeah, don't, don't, pick, don't picture it, right? It's just not, that's just not great. It's not good news, right? But the father says, I don't care. My son is back. So he is taking off. With great form. And that robe is just that robe is just moving. Right? He's losing all dignity. This is not a dignified move. This is not a move of a stoic father. This is a move of a father who loves deeply. This is a move of a God who has grace for you, even with your mistakes and your sins. And so the father runs. 
He says, I'll take the shame. My son is back. And what does he do? He grabs him, he hugs him, and he embraces him. The fa- Again, this was going to blow people's minds because the father is acting like a mother. All the people in the crowd would say, are you kidding? What, what, is, what type of dad is this? This is not a Middle Eastern dad in the first century. He's acting like a mother. He just ran. He's embracing him. He's kissing him. That's what the mother's supposed to do. No, the father's heart is love for sinners. Grace upon grace through Jesus Christ. So he embraces him. And the son, even as the father is embracing him, the son is going to get, get out his rehearsed line of negotiating. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. Let me come back. Listen, the father's like, shut up. Get the robe, get the shoes, get the ring, put it on him, kill that animal, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to feast. My son is back. This is the father's heart. This is the scandal of grace. Do you see this? Our sins do not have the last word on us. This is the scandal of God's grace. This is the scandal of Christianity. This is why some people don't want anything to do with Jesus. Because they say, you're going to tell me I've been good my whole life and that grace can go to anyone who receive it based not on what they've done, but what Jesus did? I don't like that. It's a scandal of grace. Our sins don't have the last word on us. All the ways we say, God, I want what you give, but not you. That sin doesn't have the last word on you. The things that you always reflect on and remember, your mistakes, your sins, your shame, your offenses before God, those don't have the last word on you. And the reason we don't understand this is because we have so much experience in time rehearsing our sins, rehearsing our failures, rehearsing our mistakes. It's almost as if they're on constant playback in our minds, right? We rehearse them all the time. But do you know what God does with our sins through Jesus? He says he forgets them. Do you know that? And if you know that, do you experience that? We spend so much time rehearsing our failures and our sins that we don't even realize God's forgotten them. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Tape deleted. Because our sins, through grace, are put upon Christ. The father treats the younger son as if he had not just caused the greatest trauma of his life, as if he had not just brought shame on the family, as if he had not squandered in a few days what the family tried to, had earned over decades. He's done emotional pain, but he's done pain to them financially in this story. No, the scandal of God's grace is that when God comes face to face with our sins, God covers them. When we come to him broken, he gives grace upon grace. To us, sin breaks that relationship with God. The scandal of grace is that we do nothing to restore it. God does it through his son, Jesus. What kind of father is this? It's the character of God. It's the heart of God. Not only does he welcome him back, but he puts on him a robe, he puts on him a ring, he puts on him shoes. These are all things to restoring his status. It's not just because he probably looks disheveled and is dirty, which he probably is. But the father is saying, you're, you're not just back as a servant. You're not back as sort of a half-son, step-son. You're back as my son. Here's the robe that says dignity. Here's the ring that says authority. Here's the shoes that say luxury. You're back completely as my son. Your status is restored. This means God's grace doesn't just cover our sins, but gives us full acceptance and privilege in God's family. Do you understand that the grace that comes to us through Jesus means we get treated as if we've always obeyed God? The son is treated as if he's been faithful since day one. Though he's caused the greatest shame imaginable to a father at this time in the culture. It's a scandal of grace. 
And Jesus is teaching all of this with the truth in his mind that wasn't completely clear to his hearers, but is clear to us now. That the reason the father can run to a lawbreaker like the younger son and give him grace and mercy is because of Jesus' sacrifice. That God runs to us with grace by sending Jesus to save us from the relational fallout with him that we've caused by our sins. By saying, God, I want your stuff, I don't want you. That Jesus' death on the cross is him being cut off from God so that by faith in him, we can be restored to God. Our sins on him, restoring us back to our creator and father. And this is cause for celebration, which is why the party's thrown. Partying in a righteous way is very biblical. If you look at Luke 15, there's basically three, three implications. We, we should be celebrating. We should be a party people. Gospel people should be party people because we've come to the end of ourselves. We've seen the scandal of grace and we have joy that runs through our hearts. We have joy that runs through our hearts even when circumstances have tears running down our cheeks because the joy that we have is rooted in Jesus, not in how well things are going. Or sometimes we have kind of a funeral Christianity, right? Where it's kind of like everything is like a funeral, like, yes, God is, God is gracious, but everything is so difficult. Where it's like, yeah, things are hard. This world kind of stinks, right? It's broken by sin, right? But we have God's grace, Cause for celebration, and so they, they party. They throw a party, and then we get the, the next act. And this is where people kind of end the parable almost. But we have to see verses eight, uh, 28 through 30. Many, many people call this parable the prodigal sons, but it's really the prodigal sons. It's actually really about God first, but the sons second. Not just one, but two, the older brother. This is what happens to the older brother. The older brother is told of the, the younger son's return, and he gets angry. As the kids would say, he gets mad angry. He refuses to go in the party. As soon as the crowd hears that, that the son refuses to go in the party, the crowd is thinking, can this dad catch a break? He's had both of his sons offend him in two of the most shameful ways. How shameful would it be if there's a wedding for a family and the older brother is supposed to be one of, let's say, one of the groomsmen at his younger brother's wedding. And he walks out angry. And everyone's like, where is he? Oh, he got mad. He left. And the whole wedding, oh, where is he? Oh, he left. Oh, he left. Like, it just would not be complete. It would bring shame upon that family. A great day would be tainted by the disobedience of the older brother. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is serious sin against the father all over again. And what's the root of the son, the older son's anger, the old, the elder brother. Why is he angry? 29. All these years I have served you and never disobeyed yet. You, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends 30. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. This is why he's angry. The root of his anger, the elder brother anger, is I have been good and dutiful. This little brother has been wild and rebellious. I've been good and dutiful and got nothing. He's been wild and rebellious and got everything. He's mad that that person got grace and mercy from God. This is the essence of the Pharisee's sin who were listening. 
This is the essence of religiousness. This is the essence of self-righteousness that plagues many people in many churches, but also plagues people, many people, who are not in churches, who are not even people of faith. This self-righteousness, the younger brother is the sin of irreligion, the elder brother is the, the sin of religiousness. I've been good, where's my reward? He's been bad, where's his penalty? Don't you hear it? The, the older brother is thinking that all his years of good service ought to have earned his father's favor. That's what he's thinking. Where's my party? I've been good the whole time. He thinks the father's love and acceptance is something you have to earn and keep. And this is what Jesus is unveiling. This is part of the scandal of grace. He's saying that God sees deeper than our categories of good and bad. God sees and measures with a different type of ruler. That his ruler doesn't just measure the external, but measures the internal. It measures the heart. And what Jesus is teaching here is that both of these sons are really running from God in their own distinct ways. But that grace comes for both of them, if they would receive it. Jesus says to both of these brothers, essentially in this parable, you're both wrong, you're both loved. See the grace that you need. The father gives grace to the younger brother, but he gives it also to the older brother too. What does he say to him in the verses that follow after 30? 30 through 32. It says, come, all that is mine is yours. It's inviting him back in. After he shamed him, again. It's just a bad couple months for this father. He's saying, come back in. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing us the essence of the character of God, the heart of God. And he's showing us that what many people think it means to become a Christian is not what it really means. Many people think that to become a Christian, you're asking them to become an elder brother. Somebody who says, well, now I live good and God accepts me. Now I do churchy things and God accepts me. That's not what it means to become a Christian. That's contrary to the Bible. That runs counter to the gospel. And this passage means so much to the essence of Christianity and is such a uh, picture of actually why we planted redeemers because we want people to hear the gospel, be shaped by the gospel, hear the truth of scripture and not the counterfeits, religiousness or irreligion. Right? I, I got to imagine some of your friends, even if they've been in church a lot or sometimes or grown up in it, right? there's a lot of people who've been around Christianity who've sniffed it a little bit, but they have not actually come face to face with the gospel of grace. That's a shame. It's a shame that breaks the heart of God. They've rejected Jesus without actually really getting the invitation. Right? That's, why, that's, why, that's literally why we planted this church, so that people could hear the gospel, be shaped by it. And if they're going to reject Jesus, they've got to get the invitation first. They reject, that's on them. But they need to hear the true message, not the religiousness, elder brotherness, or the younger brotherness. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question for us becomes this. Which of these brothers are you? Are you the elder brother or the younger brother? Greg's going to hook us up and throw up this little chart for us. Are you the elder brother or the younger brother? How do you relate to God when you drift from the gospel of Jesus? That we are accepted based on Jesus' work, not our own work. See, younger brothers are, are arrogant. They're reckless in living. They feel unworthy of grace. They want to earn the Father's love. They try to flee God. Elder brothers are angry when they see people get mercy or grace. They want to manipulate God through their behavior. God, I've been good, so you ought to bless me. You will never say it, but you feel it that way. When you see somebody, you see, maybe you see somebody's like, they don't even love Jesus. And look at all the stuff they got. I've been trying to follow Jesus and I got nothing. It's an elder brother tendency. Feel entitled to grace. You judge the unrighteous. You try to control God, but both need the Father's 
grace. See, if you get, if you get angry, if you are very much a rule keeper, you're going to trend towards an elder brother. There's a, obedience is a part of the Christian life, but that's not what makes us accepted before God. But if you're the type of person that that person got a break at work, man, they should have got this, right? You, you might be elder brothery. Remember watching a uh, Yankees playoff game since it's that baseball season right now, and Alex Rodriguez was on the screen. We were watching with some friends from college ministry, and they just kept kind of uh, downing him about uh, his affairs, which obviously that's contrary to the heart of God and what's actually good for us. We all, we all know that experientially. But they just kept downing him, downing him, and it just came to this point where a few of us were like, yo, you understand any of us could do that? You understand we have our own sin too? That may not be on TMZ, but we have our own. And it became this moment where we realized, like, okay, for this person, they, they run elder brother sin. And for us, we understand grace a little bit more, which, which means we, we run probably a little bit more younger brother sin because we can more relate to somebody who's run from God, who's, who's lived reckless, who's rejected in that way. So, so who are you? Who are you? Where do you trend when you waver from the gospel? And then who knows that about you? Who in your, That's why we want to do gospel communities where people can know this about you so that they can help you. Because both need grace. I want you to see this as we close here, kind of the last scene of this parable. See that there is no father like this, that God is completely unmatched. He's offended by both of his sons in shameful ways. It extends grace to them both. I want you to imagine God's experience. Around the clock, the creation that he loves is running from him. Around the clock. Running from him in the irreligious way, running from him in the religious way, running from him in the way that says, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Running from him in the way that says, uh, I'm going to earn my way to you, and then you're going to have to bless me. And yet he continues to give grace to us. To the point that he doesn't just speak about it, he doesn't just send Jesus to teach parables, he sends Jesus to come and to live a life where he didn't run from God, live a life where he actually obeyed God, live a life where he didn't think his obedience would earn anything, but he did it for us, then he dies for us in our place to restore us back to the God that we have been running from our whole lives. That through Jesus, the scandal of grace comes to earth, plants his feet on earth, atones for us so that we can be restored to the Father. And then it's that restoring grace that now begins to weed out these tendencies of running from God out of our hearts so that we walk in step with his grace and acceptance always. And that we can then take it to others. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the scandal of grace that breaks our categories and shows us we're accepted in Jesus, not based on what we've done or haven't done, but based on alone what he has done for us.